From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Sigits, nine years out. So we, it may be that um, whatever you do therapeutically to lower intraocular pressure, whether it's medical intervention or surgical intervention, the patient's steady state intraocular pressure is influenced by factors other than the therapeutic intervention. First this, in order to provide medical education free of commercial bias, as seen from here requires a financial interest disclosure before any podcast program. Dr. Musk declares no real or apparent conflict of interest. The Open Ophthalmology Project at openophthalmology.com is an enormous success with over 5,000 users in 57 countries. I have an announcement and a request about this open courseware ophthalmology project. First, I am happy to announce a dramatic improvement in functionality. Beginning this month, new versions of the 20 lecture optics series will be podcast. When you launch any of these new podcasts in iTunes, you'll see the word chapters appear on the menu bar. Each of the lectures has been divided by subtopic, and you can navigate directly to the subtopic of your choice by clicking on the chapters menu item. If you are viewing the lectures on a computer, an iPhone, or an iPod Touch, you'll also see an improvement in video resolution just in time for the OCAPs or the boards. I have a request. I want to solicit lectures for the Open Ophthalmology Project. Perhaps you have a lecture you would like to distribute to our large viewer base. Just email me at jyoungmd at gmail.com. I'll be happy to have you on board, and so will ophthalmology residents from Dublin to Dubai. Come check it out at openophthalmology.com. Which is better, medication or surgery? The question is a leitmotif of much of modern medicine, and in ophthalmology in particular, it finds its focus in the management of glaucoma. Clinicians decide by weighing therapeutic and risk probabilities and by examining the patient's medical and psychosocial milieu. Sometimes in the dark corners of hokum and anecdote, ophthalmologists summon my nemesis, the art of medicine. The well-designed study trumps the art of medicine any day of the week and provides guidance with which we can develop an empiric treatment plan. One of the most important of these guideposts is the Collaborative Initial Glaucoma Treatment Study, or SIGITS. Dave Musk, my guest today, has just published nine-year results of this seminal study. Dave, welcome to A Scene From Here. What factors have been identified to be associated with high intraocular pressure in people without glaucoma? Well, in the population studies conducted in various places around the world, there's pretty good consistency in terms of the inc- relationship between increasing age and increasing IOP. Also, um, increasing systolic blood pressure has been found to be associated with increasing IOP, although Schulzer and Drantz found that age, um, the, the age impact was explained by two other factors, darker iris coloration and myopia seem to be related to higher IOP. And those are in mostly normal populations. Can I get you to describe the design and aim of SIGITS? We, we call it SIGITS. It's a collaborative initial glaucoma treatment study. 
Uh, it was a randomized clinical trial um, in which we identified newly diagnosed and untreated subjects with open-angle glaucoma, three forms of that, but most were primary open-angle glaucoma. And the real question, the, the aim of the study was to determine what is the better initial treatment between the t more traditional topical drops or incisional surgery, which in our study was trabeculectomy. Dave, what were the main outcome measures in this study? Well, in the main digit study, visual field and was, was the primary outcome, but in the study that we're talking about tonight, the real focus was on intraocular pressure at baseline and intraocular pressure during follow-up. With regard to this current paper, what was the length of follow-up for these patients? This paper presents information that goes out to nine years. In other words, our models could accommodate information on subjects through nine years of follow-up. On average, our overall group had about 7.5 years of follow-up. Dave, what were your findings? Well, in terms of factors that were associated with higher intraocular pressure, at the time we identified these subjects at the beginning of the study prior to treatment, we found that um, subjects who were male uh, had significantly higher pressures than females. And that's not just a univariate finding. That's adjusted for all other factors. We also found that subjects who had pseudo-exfoliative open-angle glaucoma had dramatically higher pressures than the reference group, which was the primary open-angle glaucoma group. And that was, I think, a 5 millimeter of mercury higher impact. Those who were younger um, at the time of diagnosis had higher intraocular pressures. Those who had a pupillary defect, and almost all of those were afferent pupillary defects, had about a two millimeter of mercury higher pressure than those without. And finally, we had 14 centers involved in this study, and there was a significant center effect on intraocular pressure at baseline. I can talk about the factors related to intraocular pressure during follow-up too, but I don't want to confuse things. So those were the factors associated with higher intraocular pressure at the time of uh, the subjects presenting. Since elevated intraocular pressure has been associated with older age in non-glaucomatous patients, why do you think you saw an association between higher baseline IOP and younger age? Does this represent a detection bias? Well, I think bias is an important factor to consider because what we're doing here is not looking at the uh, effect of randomization, the randomized treatment on intraocular pressure as much as we're looking at the entire cohort of 607 subjects who were involved in the study and we're trying to determine what factors predict intraocular pressure at baseline. Now our finding that those who were younger had higher intraocular pressures differs from that found in population-based studies. Is that a detection bias? Well, that would enter in if our, if our subjects were identified in a manner that differs from subjects in those population studies. And that's definitely the case because uh, certainly we were focused on glaucoma patients. Um, and so we posit that um, a study of subjects with glaucoma probably should uncover associations that differ quite a bit 
from studies of uh, populations in which most people are normal. Why younger subjects had with open-angle glaucoma had somewhat higher intraocular pressures might be related to glaucoma being a different and perhaps more aggressive disorder uh, within those diagnosed at a younger age than those diagnosed at an older age. Or it might, or a corollary might be that differing susceptibilities of the optic nerve and retinal nerve layer to pressure uh, exist by age. What factors were associated with a higher change in intraocular pressure at nine years? Well, we looked at um, what factors were associated with the mean intraocular pressure over time, and that's a little bit different from evaluating associations with changes from baseline in intraocular pressure over time, although both approaches should uh, yield similar associations. We found that subjects with higher baseline intraocular pressure had higher IOPs during follow-up, as did subjects with hypertension and those with lesser education. We found somewhat paradoxically those with more visual field loss at baseline had lower intraocular pressures during follow-up, and we found that surgical treatment induced lower intraocular pressure than topical medical treatment, but that impact was especially so in non-smokers. You found a greater change in intraocular pressure in patients who had undergone surgical rather than medical treatment. Is this because ophthalmologists are able to titrate medical therapy but not surgical effect? That's to say, ophthalmologists will treat medically until the intraocular pressure goal is achieved and no further, whereas surgical therapy may, in some cases, reduce IOP beyond goal, thereby reducing the population mean IOP for the surgical group. Indeed, um, I think that's, that's true. In, in the SIGIS study, we established a target intraocular pressure, and that was used by all of our ophthalmologists as the goal of treatment, whether that treatment was medical or surgical. If the target intraocular pressure was achieved and there was no loss of visual field in the medical group, no further treatment was called for. And so treating ophthalmologists did indeed have more control over reaching that intraocular pressure target medically than surgically. I'm interested in the association of lower education with higher treatment IOP. Do you think that lower education is a marker for lower socioeconomic status and that these patients were less able to afford medication or or, or less compliant with medication? And did this relationship hold up for the surgical treatment subgroup as well? Well, that's a good question. The, the association we found of lower education with higher intraocular pressures during treatment held up for those treated surgically as well as those treated medically. Uh, we do view education as one measure of socioeconomic status, so it is a marker of that. And we attribute the effect of lower education on intraocular pressure during follow-up to broader socioeconomic influences that perhaps aren't real well measured by education but are reflected by it. We tend to think that um, this is due to factors that we didn't measure rather than compliance or affordability because we think if, if those factors were operative, the effect would be much more prominent in the medication arm and not so prominent in the surgical arm since both uh, compliance 
and affordability would affect uh, the medical arm much more. But you found this effect with both arms? That's correct, yes. While we're on the subject of markers, do you think that smoking is a marker, or is it that smoking affects IOP directly? Uh, I I imagine this is a a very difficult thing to tease out. One could argue that since smoking wasn't associated with intraocular pressure at baseline, but only associated with intraocular pressure during follow-up, it's probably a marker for other behaviors or exposures. However, smoking may affect intraocular pressure directly in those whose intraocular pressure is influenced by a blood that must function well. And so smoking only influenced intraocular pressure during follow-up in those treated surgically, not those treated medically. We can't go beyond hypothesis generation in addressing this association, and so we have to look to further studies of this association. Confirmation. Now, you said that there were intercenter differences in baseline and in treatment IOP. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Does this reflect socioeconomic differences between the center's populations? Well, as, as, as we, we discussed, these, these intercenter differences uh, played a significant role in both baseline and follow up intraocular pressure. Our centers were scattered around the continental United States. Uh, Certainly the ethnic uh, makeup, the uh, age uh, makeup differed. We did adjust for age and for race and for sex in in looking at these intercenter differences as well as um, all the other factors, um, education among them. And, And we still found differences between centers. And so we we attribute those differences to probably unmeasured socioeconomic or other factors that differ in these centers' populations, which varied from a sample size of 65 or so in the largest center down to 15 or so in the smallest center. Dave, how do your data compare with those of other studies? Well, for the reasons we discussed um, about differences between a group of people with glaucoma, newly diagnosed, and, and like the Blue Mountain Eye study, which was a population-based study, I want to avoid placing too much weight on on similarities and differences between the associations we found with intraocular pressure and those found in population-based studies. That being said, our baseline associations of higher intraocular pressure in uh, those with pseudo-exfoliative glaucoma are consistent with the Blue Mountain Eye study's report of higher intraocular pressure in those with pseudo-exfoliation. And likewise, our association of lesser education with higher intraocular pressure in follow-up may relate to that found in, in the recent uh, Tanyang-Pagar study. Intraocular pressure has been studied often in, in the literature, but usually as an independent variable influencing visual field progression, not as a dependent variable to predict during treatment. And that's one of the major differences in our study design versus what most of the literature has. I can understand why patients with higher baseline intraocular pressures had higher medically treated intraocular pressures as well. And this was a finding of yours. But why did patients with higher baseline intraocular pressures have higher surgically treated intraocular pressures, which was also a finding of yours? Yeah, that's that's a good observation. Um, We do know from studies such as 
that conducted by uh, Dr. Barbara Klein in the Beaver Dam population that um, intraocular pressure is genetically influenced. So we, it may be that um, whatever you do therapeutically to lower intraocular pressure, whether it's medical intervention or surgical intervention, the patient's steady state intraocular pressure is influenced by factors other than the therapeutic intervention. And so we think that um, that is probably operative here even in patients who had uh, an incisional surgical procedure. There seems to have been a paradoxical relationship between mean treatment intraocular pressure and visual field loss. What do you think about this? Visual field loss isn't like other variables you examined anyway because it's not an independent variable, but it's a manifestation of the glaucoma itself. That is to say that a patient with progressive nerve fiber layer visual field loss is said to have glaucoma regardless of his intraocular pressure. Right, yeah. There was a paradoxical relationship, and we had to think about that for a while. I'm not sure we have the right answer, but first to to explain it, we found that those with more baseline visual field loss, whether that field loss is measured by the mean deviation from the Humphrey uh, 24-2 test, or whether it's measured with the Sigis visual field score, which is similar to the Aegis field score. Patients with more visual field loss had higher intraocular pressure at presentation and lower intraocular pressure during follow-up. As you observe, the baseline association seems intuitive. Uh, More severe glaucoma, higher intraocular pressure at baseline. The follow-up finding, though, seems counterintuitive. More severe glaucoma at baseline, lower intraocular pressure during treatment. And this is so even after adjusting for other reported influences like age, education, hypertension, and, and so on. We wonder if even within the context of a clinical trial protocol where we try to control treatment and have target intraocular pressures and all, that treatment was more aggressive for those with more severe visual field loss at baseline, thereby lowering intraocular pressure during follow-up more so uh, in those with more extensive visual field loss at baseline than than in those with mild visual field loss at baseline. We're we're still scratching our heads about that finding. It's paradoxical. That's a great point. Uh, If I'm reading you properly, it's that it's difficult to say which is the cause and which is the effect. It's like observing that fires at which there are more fire engines present tend to cause more damage. Yeah. Dave, here's the sort of bottom line question. What am I, as a clinician, to do with these findings? Uh, Ask my patients to stop smoking? That's something that I do anyway. Should I be more apt to recommend surgery rather than medical therapy to my less educated patients? And I mean that seriously. I mean, this is an extension of what I'm reading here. Yeah, well, first, um, an important caveat, and that is that this is an observational Uh, look at a cohort of patients uh, going through a clinical trial. And you have to seek confirmation from from further studies um, of these associations to ensure that these associations are real and they're not not artifactual. But um, that being said, um, you ask if, for instance, you should be apt to recommend uh, surgery rather than medical therapy in less educated patients. Well, 
our association of lesser education with higher interactive approaches during follow-up certainly deserves confirmation, but also deserves serious thought about what treatment recommendations you'll make. If intraocular pressure is as influential in controlling glaucoma as we now believe, then effective means to reduce intraocular pressure must be tailored to the patient. And treatment of that patient could be tailored based on your observation that you expect them to be very non-compliant to medications for whatever reason, whether it's affordability or uh, ease of use. Or um, if you observe that a patient has much more advanced visual field loss, I, I think it's, it's um, judicious to um, consider carefully what type of intervention you'll recommend. As far as our smoking finding, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that you recommend that routinely to your patients to not smoke. And I'd like to see that and other detrimental behaviors be the subject of any physician's encounter with a patient for so many good reasons. Uh, if our finding that um, that uh, smoking uh, in in the surgical group uh, resulted in higher intraocular pressures, lends credence to recommending not smoking um, for an ophthalmologist, all the better. But as you know, there there are more compelling reasons, both in terms of the patient's eye health and their systemic health, to recommend that. David, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Well. I'd like to observe that this study was conducted kind of in a logical sequence of studies that we're involved in right now. We are looking at the impact of intraocular pressure uh, assessed in a whole number of different ways on visual field progression. And you know from the recent literature that there's been quite a focus on intraocular pressure variation and, and its impact on visual field progression as well as mean intraocular pressure and maximum intraocular pressure in a lot of different ways of, of um, looking at it. So we thought, let's step back first and look at what factors are predictive of intraocular pressure so we understand that well before we look at intraocular pressure as a risk factor for visual field progression. So that's the logical sequence we're involved in, and we're soon to publish our, our findings on visual field progression. But if our study causes people to step back and think about factors other than treatment itself and how they may influence intraocular pressure, even if some of our findings are artifacts or are never confirmed by others, I think then we have achieved uh, our, our aim here. I think you've uh, raised um, many thoughtful questions, Josh, and I appreciate the opportunity to interact tonight with you. Dave Musk, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Dave Musk is Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences and Associate Research Scientist in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Michigan Kellogg Eye Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. His paper, Factors Associated with Intraocular Pressure Before and During Nine Years of Treatment in the Collaborative Initial Glaucoma Treatment Study, is in press in ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Musk or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. 
in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.